from Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my colleague and good friend, Will Binkson. Will and I met when we were both working as security consultants at Sigital, during which he performed and supervised a variety of different AppSec activities, including penetration testing, red teaming, architectural risk analysis, code review, threat modeling, and malicious code detection. Will has also held security leadership roles at a healthcare data analytics startup and in the Department of Defense. Today, Will is a senior security engineer at Netflix, focused on securing the cloud. He obviously loves tackling hard problems that have high impact. Uh, he's also very active in the security community and generously contributes his time to initiatives like B-Sides and OWASP. Will, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks, Caroline. Great to be here. So, Will, you just got back a few weeks ago from Las Vegas, uh, where I understand you were uh, teaching an AWS security workshop. Um, and I understand that that class was actually standing room only in a room that was meant to accommodate more than 2,000 people. Uh, yeah, so Vegas was awesome. Um, I was there delivering a briefing at Black Hat. Uh, on AWS security, not not giving a workshop this time, uh, though I have given them in the past, um, but delivering a briefing on a new methodology for detecting credential compromise uh, within AWS. But yeah, the crowd was uh, really large. I wasn't expecting uh, the venue to be that big. Uh, I didn't know how many people would actually show up to my talk, uh, who's actually interested in the cloud security, uh, but it was, uh, a rather large group uh, and it was quite amazing experience to be honest. Cool. That's so awesome. I mean, I think it's clear from hearing about the number of people that attended your session. Um, and I feel like in conversation, actually, it comes up a lot. People are always asking about AWS security. Can you give us sort of the TLDR on your talk? What was, what's the, what's the short version about detecting credential compromise? Sure. Uh, the TLDR of the talk was uh, basically understanding or using the audit trail within AWS called CloudTrail, um, analyzing events uh, as they come in and kind of locking to the first IP seen by a temporary credential. Uh, so within Amazon, every server you deploy has a credential of sort uh, that gets rotated automatically. So as you see these credentials getting generated, uh, lock to the first use of it and then alert outside of that use case. Uh, and it's nice because it works at any scale uh, and it works in real time or on historical information as well. Uh, so it kind of, you know, you can kill multiple birds with it uh, from a forensics perspective or from just an active monitoring uh, perspective as well. Um, but it's something that uh, I haven't seen others implement or do. And it, it, when I, when I actually came up with the method, I was, I kind of stepped back and thought, man, this is way too simple. Um, is it going to work? And it, it, it did. And it worked at our size, uh, which was pretty amazing. Uh, for us, our biggest problem is we're just a large infrastructure deployment. And for us to understand our entire uh, 
space from a capacity and IP perspective. Uh, it just takes us too long to describe. So we have to kind of learn as we go. That is incredible. One of the things I'm always curious about with regards to any security control is sort of how much of it can be automated versus how much of it, um, you know, requires manual intervention. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how our listeners might think about setting this up in their own environments? Uh, sure. So uh, I, we actually released a um, kind of proof of concept uh, that applies to um, an example of how you'd implement this. We didn't go as far as saying, here, run this uh, Terraform template and it'll work in your environment because everyone sets up their monitoring different. Um, but the way it works is if you deploy code, you can rewrite it in Python or in a node or a different language if you want. Our example that we provide on GitHub is Python. Uh, but once you have it set up and you have that data store actually uh, storing the data, uh, it's unsupervised uh, and you just, it takes one to six hours to come up to full coverage within your environment. From, but from that point forward, uh, it's just a matter of servicing alerts, if any. Um, so it's, it's kind of nice in that uh, you might have to supervise it in the beginning to understand, are there some IP addresses that we should uh, whitelist and say, okay, we know that uh, it's common for engineers to potentially uh, pull the credentials down to the office IP address. Uh, may, you know, so maybe we should whitelist our office IPs or have a, a secure block of IPs that we don't want to alert on, but potentially uh, just just flag. Uh, but after the the one to six hours, it's kind of just off and running on its own, um, and it it's proven to be pretty effective for us. That is awesome. Will you are no stranger to teaching people about what you know in the security realm. Um, in addition to this briefing that you did at Black Hat, you've also done uh, an AWS security workshop. Uh, and I understand you're also teaching as an adjunct professor, uh, teaching security classes at the University of Texas, El Paso. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why do you enjoy teaching? Why do you, you know, you've got, you've held all of these security roles that take up a lot of your time and a lot of your energy. Um, and then you also choose in your spare time, quote unquote, uh, to share your knowledge with others. Why, why do you do it? Uh, I, I think the biggest thing for me is just the look on people's face when uh, I can teach them something or the excitement that they have when uh, I've presented something and they come back and say, hey, I, you know, I applied that and it worked or uh, based on what you said the other day, I was able to do this. Uh, so for me, that's it's it's really kind of awesome to give back. Uh, I didn't learn or get to where I am today by myself. You know, I had lots of mentors, lots of teachers that taught me real world, uh, like industry experience. Uh, one of my best classes in my master's degree was taught by an industry professional that was an adjunct professor uh, and so for me it was kind of like man this is really awesome I want to do this uh, so I've been trying over the last few years to give back uh, in any way possible either be it through the community initiatives or b-sides or OWASP um, helping the university back in my hometown and teach a class there uh, and then recently this past year doing AWS workshops um, I feel like I've learned a lot through the, the years in my career and have uh, 
some information that I would love to, to share with others. Uh, and so I, I think that's really what drives my passion for teaching, presenting, doing these trainings, is it's a chance for me to uh, tell some information that I think is relevant uh, and hopefully others want to hear. Um, but it's been uh, really exciting watching kind of my class back home grow in popularity. Um, I think when I first started teaching, I had uh, 12 students my first year. Uh, the second year grew to like 20-ish students. Uh, and then this past year, I had 44. Um, so it's, it's awesome from a uh, perspective that, you know, security is catching on back home. Uh, and, you know, these, these classes weren't around when I, when I went to school, you know, in high school, initially in college. So it's, it's really kind of exciting to see uh, and be able to provide this type of material to others. But for me, it's just, uh, I don't know, I, I figure that uh, someday I'll probably end up retiring and becoming a, a full-time professor or something. That's awesome. So growing up in El Paso, it's not as though you were learning about cybersecurity in school. How did you develop an interest in this field and how did you come to work in the security field? Yeah, great question. So I think I fell in love with computers in sixth grade. Uh, I was lucky enough to get into a computer class at my middle school uh, where we were learning how to build websites on some old uh, Apple machines. Uh, and that's where I kind of fell in love with, them. wow, these computers are pretty powerful. Uh, we had always had a computer at home running DOS that I would, uh, you know, do my bookkeeping and, uh, you know, enter my like three cents of savings interest every month or something. That um, is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I just spent a lot of time on, on the computer and kind of fell in love. When I went to high school, I took the programming course, uh, actually went to state with, a, with our team uh, to write Java code and uh, kind of just knew computers uh, really well. My sister was going through uh, pre-med at the time uh, and she was uh, getting burnt out. And I was like, man, if she can't do med school, because I was always into orthopedics, I was, like, I was like, I definitely can't do med school because I always thought, I always looked up to my sister, thought she was smarter than me. And I was like, all right, but I love computers. Computers need to go places. Let's get into computers. And so I kind of just went from there. I had seen a movie by, uh, or with Colin Farrell and Al Pacino called The Recruit. And Colin Farrell is this hacker that gets recruited by the CIA and becomes this uh, covert spy. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Uh, and then I kind of fell off on the security side and forgot about it and just went to learn programming uh, and then eventually found my way back into security. That's so cool. I actually, my sister is also a medical doctor. Uh, she happens to be a pediatrician. And as she was going for medical school, I was like, that, that really seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yep, exactly. and, and I don't think I'm interested in that. So it's funny how I didn't know that before right now that we, that we have that in common, uh, having, having siblings uh, who studied medicine. Will, throughout your career, you've had a bunch of different kinds of roles. We met when we were both consultants, um, and there are certainly things that are very different about consulting uh, than there are when you are either leading or when you're part of a security team. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the difference has been for you uh, in your various types of roles and a little bit about like what do you like about being a consultant? What don't you like? What do you like about being on a security team? What don't you like? Uh, sure. 
Yeah, so uh, I loved consulting. One, I got to work with you. And uh, two, I was lucky enough to be that consultant that jumped around. Uh, so in my uh, time as a consultant, I was able to really get a huge breadth of knowledge within security. I basically didn't say no to a uh, project. And even if I didn't know how to do it, I just figured out how. And so I was lucky enough that I think my longest project uh, while consulting was maybe a month long initiative or a month long uh, client. Uh, so I got to really see a whole lot. Uh, and so for me, that was uh, really amazing. And I, I relate that to being out here in Silicon, you know, Silicon Valley, like tech startup world in that, you know, you always, I've heard people say a year at a startup is like three years in the industry because uh, of how fast things move and change. And I would, I would relate that to consulting as well. And uh, I was able to see so much in so many different industries just uh, by chance because I, I, I was put on those projects. I was eager. I was, uh, wanted to learn and wanted to grow. Um, the one thing I didn't really like about consulting was that, you know, at the end of the day, you're delivering results and a report to a client and giving them the readout. And then they, uh, it's up to them to actually go solve that problem, right? Unless you're actually... A, uh, doing a staff, a staff augmentation and actually the person implementing those changes. Um, so oftentimes for me, it was delivering my results, uh, explaining why I think things needed to be changed in those environments, and uh, then hoping that those clients went off and ended that work. And so that's what really led me to want to go and flip roles and go be a pra practitioner uh, and, so that I could actually make that change that I wanted to see. Um, I could implement or use my knowledge from consulting, find problems and try to solve them, um, but actually be on the other side and uh, kind of uh, be a forcing change. So I really wanted to, to drive change through an organization. And that's when I ended up uh, switching to go uh, back into being a practitioner. And when you did that switch, I'm curious because um, I, like you, um, have held practitioner roles as well as consulting roles. Um, sometimes in the industry, I'll encounter a colleague who has really specialized in consulting for their whole career. Um, and I think that it's just like anything else. When you find yourself in, a, in the same type of role for a long time, um, then there are these ways in which you just don't have the advantage of knowing what it's like on the other side. And I think that for consultants who maybe have never been in a practitioner role, it's easy to think like, oh, I just did this assessment and I just wrote this really great report, you know, and, and when I hand it over to pract the practitioner, now, quote unquote, all they have to do is implement it. Um, but then of course, for the practitioner, it's not ever that easy um, because there's always so many factors that the consultant uh, may not be aware of because it's not within the scope of their project. Did you find as you made that transition from consultant to practitioner that there were things that surprised you that you didn't expect? Oh, definitely. Um, and still to uh, this day, as I you know work as a practitioner, I'm still seeing things that I'm like, man, th these are really hard problems that, uh, you know, as a consultant would have delivered a, a report and said, hey, just go do these things. And I, I mean, there's a reason that we continually find as a consultant or as, you know, someone doing an assessment that you continually find problems across companies and that's because they're hard. 
you know, when I was at the startup, it was hard to convince others within engineering or other teams, hey, we should do this, uh, or understand how, how do you actually do deployments here? You know, how would we patch something? You know, finding, I, I'll never forget finding a, a server that had been online for over 800 days in AWS and just thinking like, wow, this has probably never been patched. Uh, can we reboot this? And then them saying, oh, no, we don't have the password to unencrypt it. If it, uh, it was using, I think, Lux file encryption. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, that was my first step into being a practitioner after consulting and having to fight those battles and figure out, okay, I know we want to solve this problem. How do we do it? You know, go build those relationships with other teams, provide that context to them and get them on board because you can't do it yourself. Um, so, you know, I definitely, if I went back into consulting, uh, I would have a different perspective on uh, initiatives and could draw from experience with either be it scale or, you know, distributed infrastructure, uh, immutable infrastructure and, you know, those kind of things. But it's something you kind of take for granted if you've only ever done consulting is, you know, what's it like to be on the other side? How, how is it on that uh, enterprise side? You know, what, what kind of hurdles are you having to, to go? Is it resources or is it just a technical problem? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. It kind of reminds me of, uh, for me, transitioning from being a non-parent and then seeing like friends and colleagues of mine who have kids and making all sorts of judgments out of ignorance um, and then becoming a parent and realizing like, oh, this is different <laughs> than what I expected. I mean, I remember meeting a friend of mine, her daughter at the time was nine months old and we went to visit her and her husband and, and their family at their home. And the little girl is crawling around and she's, she's like, thrown up on herself, which for a nine month old is totally normal, but I didn't know it at the time. And I was like, their daughter is crawling around with spit up on her shirt and they're not changing her. Like, why aren't they, cha why aren't they putting fresh clothes on her? And then I had a kid and then I realized like, oh, because pretty much as soon as you put fresh clothes on that baby, it's gonna happen again. <laughs> so it's just, you know, and it was just, it was really for me the difference between I hadn't been in those shoes before. And then when I was, it was totally different. I used to also think like, oh, if we have evening events at work, you know, for people who are parents, can't you just like get a babysitter? And then now I understand like, it's really just not that straightforward. And I think, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a funny analogy to make a little bit, but there is such a difference between, you know, being in position. Like I find that once the sale is made, when you're a consultant, then there's relatively little selling that you have to do in terms of convincing others because, you know, at that point, there's already a check signed. There's already, you know, time set aside for you to do your work. You know, people are bought into that specific consulting project. Um, but beyond that, there is, as you were saying, so much context and so much uh, relationship building uh, that needs to take place in order to actually be effective. Yep, exactly. Uh, I love that story about uh, relating consulting for practitioners to uh, your life with and without children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just the difference between experience and not, you know, yep, and, exactly. and even if you can be really close to it, um, it's really just not the same until you've done it yourself. Um, 
Will, another thing that I think would be really interesting for our listeners is to hear your perspective because you've worked not only in different types of roles, but you've also worked in different types of industries. So certainly as a consultant, you worked for all sorts of companies in all sorts of industries. Um, but you know, as a practitioner, you've also worked like, for example, uh, for defense, you've worked in healthcare, you've, you've worked in tech, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how those different environments um, differ from each other um, and maybe a little bit about, you know, what you like and, and maybe if there's things you don't like uh, about each of those environments? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, so I guess I started my career uh, at Raytheon being a Department of Defense contractor, um, focusing on Army systems, and it was kind of... Uh, it was interesting uh, when you, when I think about it, um, I, I actually miss it to today uh, because of some of the really, really awesome tech that I was able to work on. Uh, and it, it kind of, you know, I was lucky enough to traverse my way back into security uh, working there and see, you know, what are the problems that they're trying to solve in that space. Um, but there, there's, there's so much, you know, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of, uh, CMMI level five while working out here in, you know, the Bay, but you know, the maturity model is something that uh, is very important there. Um, when we would ship uh, production systems and software, uh, we had a requirement that they run 15 years without a, a single problem. Uh, you know, can you imagine using your iPhone for 15 years or that one piece of code that you, uh, are writing needs to go through this formal qualification testing. Uh, that's a several month process and you're shipping software once, maybe twice a year. Uh, so that was very interesting when I switched out of the Department of Defense area and you know moved into consulting to see just how different industries were. Uh, when you look at the healthcare space, that was completely eye-opening to me uh, just because there were so many things to worry about. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a really great team uh, and then also fortunate enough to be at a place that had some really awesome data. Uh, but, you know, with, with the healthcare data that we had, we had to protect it and protect it in a way that hopefully no one uh, could, could get to it that wasn't supposed to. You know, I had to learn all about HIPAA. I'd never even heard of HIPAA except for privacy, you know, the privacy information sheet that you sign at the doctor op doctor's office. Uh, so I had to learn about what, what that meant, what that meant for us, what that meant from data access at the company, um, even just uh, best practices from uh, how to set up laptops and, you know, those kind of things. And then uh, being on that, on the industry side, understanding that some of our clients or customers wanted us to have other types of certification. So, you know, take getting the company ready to go through SOC 2. Uh, you know, it was very interesting to me just to see all these controls uh, that I had to put in place and learn about them and see where are our gaps and what could we do to, to meet those. Uh, and then, like, if you look at being a Netflix right now, you know, we're driven by PCI. And uh, when I was a consultant, I, I dealt with these companies that had to deal with the same kind of problems, but I never had to, to actually deal with them myself, mm -hmm. right? I could do an assessment and say, hey, you know, you need these kind of things for PCI, uh, but never actually knew what it meant to say, no, I actually need to implement these things. 
And so it's interesting to see from the client side here in Netflix, how could we architect around uh, PCI and make it the smallest, most controlled place while still giving freedom to move fast? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really interesting uh, just from the various different industries, mainly through the different kind of controls. And, you know, what, if I go look at back at healthcare, you could almost cite a bunch of like requirements for HIPAA or something as to why these engineering teams should not do something. We're at Netflix you know, as long as it's outside of the PCI space, we kind of look, look at the teams, have conversations and understand, you know, why do you want to do this? And then we figure out how to do it because ultimately it's, it's up to the team that wants to do it. If, if they want to do it, we'll figure out a way uh, to do it securely. Um, so it's been really interesting to be here and really never say no uh, and be that yes man and just figure out a way to make teams, get teams what they need uh, securely. So f- for me, that's been the biggest uh, differences between the different industries that I've been in is kind of the controls and pace of how fast things move. Even when I was doing the healthcare stuff, we were working with the government. So it wasn't as slow as working with the Department of Defense, but there were still releases that were happening, say, weekly or every two weeks, where, you know, here at Netflix, I release my code sometimes several times a day but I know that we release, you know, thousands of times a day on our, our main platform. That's incredible. The amount of breadth of experience that you have and the contrast between working for an organization that requires a CMMI level five, which actually, when you say it, it makes perfect sense to me. I personally don't have any experience in the defense sector. And so that's something that I didn't know. Um, I sort of had this perception that, there was a different kind of pace uh, working for defense, but but I don't think I've ever heard anyone articulate the why to me before, which is, I thought you said that so eloquently, like, could you imagine using your iPhone for the next 15 years? You know, there's just no way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really comes down to a different type of requirement. So Will, we've got time for one more question, and it's, what do you think is next? What do you think is next for you? And what do you think is next for the industry at large? Uh, great question. So next for me and industry, um, you know, one thing that I've been really trying to figure out how to solve and push is you know, if, you, if you take a look at like what I've been doing the last year here at Netflix, some, some research trying to solve these hard problems. If you look at my Black Hat talk, for example, uh, there's a new method for detecting credential compromise. That's great. There's an example of how to do it. But now you as a company that's not Netflix have to take that example and implement it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and with some, some stuff I'm going to publish later this year, the same kind of deal. It's great. We can do that here at Netflix. Uh, but how do others actually implement that? So what I'm trying to figure out is what's the best way to implement something and get it where everyone can take advantage by default, right? So really drive it down to the source and convince the parties necessary that, Hey, this is really powerful. Can we get it implemented here? You know, is it making code changes myself? Is it, you know, how do, how do you do that? And I think that is going to be super powerful if individuals can take the research that they've done and continue driving it forward to the appropriate parties and try, you know put the effort in to convince them to say, Hey, you know, if, if it was implemented here instead of at my level, everyone would take advantage of it. I think that's really what's next for me is to figure out what's the best way to uh, solve these one-off problems for everybody.
Very cool. You know, in the time that I've known you, one of the things that I love the most about you as a person is that not only are you crazy smart and hardworking, but you're also very interested in like making a broad impact and sharing what you know with others. Uh, and Will, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It was great and good to talk to you. We need to catch up outside this podcast. Definitely. Will mentioned his work on a new methodology for detecting credential compromise within AWS. If you would like to explore this resource or other resources, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io slash humans of InfoSec. You can also find us on Twitter at humans of InfoSec. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening.